The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. See a few new faces. If you're brand new to the center, there is a bathroom downstairs to your right, second door on the right. And as we get closer to the winter season, um, we ask that people store their coats down in the basement to the left where we keep the zabutans, the big square cushions or rectangular cushions. We keep those downstairs or most of them downstairs. And there are also a bunch of coat, uh, coat hooks down there. You can leave your coats um, during this time of year. So I've been giving a series of talks on this list that the Buddha used for teaching called the Seven Factors of Awakening. But I thought we'd take a few minutes at the beginning to see if anybody has any questions about meditation practice before I continue this talk. These talks uh, were on the, the factor of energy or effort. But any questions about the sitting instructions, anything that's not clear for you, it's good to feel free to bring it up. Chances are that it may be useful for other people, too, your question. So you know what you're doing? <laughs> then tell me. <laughs> I was just on a, a five-day or six-day meditation retreat at the Christine Center with a visiting Buddhist monk, Ajahn Amaro, a pretty well-known teacher now in the West. And he's a, a British man. And uh, probably one of the uh, real characteristics of mindfulness practice, or just the, just the intention to be awake, to be really present with what's going on, is it's humiliating. Because um, if you've done this for any length of time, you know that we may have the intention just to be clear knowing that body's like this, the mind's like this. But how long is it before the mind just gets swept away into thought and we're just lost in proliferation? One thought leading to the next, reacting to this, wanting that, judging, comparing, or just meaningless thoughts sometimes. Now, these are thoughts where we're not aware that they're thoughts. And the, the nice simile that's often used is, it's like when you're in a movie theater and you don't realize you're in a movie theater because you're so engrossed in the movie. So that's how it is for us most of the time. So it's, if it feels like things are going well, <laughs> it might be time to take a closer look. <laughs> now, sometimes practice does go well. The mind is, for whatever reason, it's disenchanted with our thinking, with our you know, habits of proliferation. And it just wants to do something simple, like know the breath as it comes in and goes out, or no hearing, or no walking if we're moving. But that's not usually the case. <laughs> so any questions about meditation practice? <laughs> it's OK if you don't have questions, because mostly the answer is, to keep trying and be patient, to be, be uh, satisfied with a few moments of being mindful. 
And just to slowly be more clear about what it means to be mindful and what it means when we're not, what it's like when we're not mindful. And to understand the protection of being mindful, how protecting it is for the mind when we're mindful. It's like all of a sudden we see things coming that we wouldn't otherwise notice. We see mistakes before they're mistakes. You know, we see the possibility of speaking unwisely or of not, uh, of not speaking when we really should say something, doing something or not doing something. It's just like we start seeing it. <clears throat> and then we can make more wise choices in life. And when we're lost in our endless proliferation, we're not only driving blind, but we're under the influence of habit energy, which is often driven by fear or greed or anger or just some kind of more primitive neediness, emotional neediness. And this is just how it is. Mm -hmm. Jen? moment, when we, we talk about the present moment, of course, we'll need an object, but any object will do, because it's much more about how the mind is relating than what it's relating to. And uh, in that moment, I'm not sure, but in that moment, it might have been that the easiest way to Dhamma, the way it is, the present moment, is to understand that the mind is confused or uncertain about what to do, or maybe that there's some doubt. And when we open to the present moment, or to Dhamma, the way it is, there's a particular flavor, and that's more what we're looking for than like what object. There's a particular flavor, and that, that particular flavor of Dhamma is a, um, its movement. One of, it, one of its characteristics is it's moving. It's, it has a dynamic quality. It can't be captured with a concept. So when we open to doubt or uncertainty in that moment, although I'm giving it a word, you know, I'm naming it as doubt or uncertainty, the actual experience, the moment-to-moment -moment experience of doubt is, is an intuitive uh, awakening to something that's moving, that can't be grasped or known. And so it has a feeling of intimacy and it doesn't have boundaries that a concept tends to give something. So in that sense, it has also the characteristic of wholeness, the absence of boundaries, which also makes it hard to capture. And uh, it's like 
And of course, this moment would work too, the moment that we're all having right now. And of course, it's the, the particular object that any one of us might use in this moment would be different. Somebody might be really like looking at intense knee pain. Other people might feel, another person might be feeling a little claustrophobic with the crowded room. Another person might be feeling a lot of happiness for just being in a wholesome place with a nice group of people. But if we start opening to that moment, the openness itself is, in a sense, the defining characteristic of the present moment. It's the letting go of the limiting concepts that, in a sense, defines the present moment, but rather than what we're opening to or what we're seeing. Yeah, uh, the other, the, there's a more sort of specific answer to your question, which is, in any moment, it seems like there is something that's predominant. That that given the way our mind has been conditioned, is what's most relevant. It's like what the mind, in this whole field of perception, you know, the mind is perceiving many different things, as you described. The, given that given how our mind has been conditioned, one of those perceptions is going to rise to the top of the heap as being most relevant. And it is easier to open to that. Because if we try to open to something else, like the breath, when the knee is screaming with pain, if we try to open the breath, part of the, uh, the, the, part of the mind that wants to attend or that can attend, that can notice, it's being drawn to feel the pain, this you know, screeching, difficult sensations in the knee. And so then we have to exert some effort or willfulness to stay with the breath. So in a sense, there is a predominant object that we don't necessarily find it by trying to figure it out. You can just see where the attention goes. And if it doesn't go anywhere, then look at the doubt. You know, like if you're not sure where to put the attention, then, and, and you just relax with that, then just know that. Just know the uncertainty. Or it may be that none of those objects are important. And what you're aware of in that moment of indecision of what you should do or what you should pay attention to is just the experience of knowing. And so this is something, too, that opens up in moments that we have to be relaxed with, where there is a quality of knowing that this is the present moment, but not any particular object being clear in that moment. And that's okay, too. Sometimes there's just the knowing of space, I guess you could, if you want to give it a word, the space of now, without anything clear. It's not that there aren't objects, but there's nothing being clearly framed or highlighted in that moment. It's just more a sense of knowing. And then uh, it's really nice to trust that part of the mind, not to be dependent on an object. And a lot of the times, the reason why it's nice to have guided meditations is you'll get different instructions at different times, and it can be infuriating. But it's also useful because otherwise we can get dependent on a technique and define the practice as a technique. And so if I'm not with the breath, then I must not be meditating. 
or if I don't have a clear object that I'm I'm focusing on, then I must be doing something wrong. But to understand that it isn't about the object, the freedom that this path is about is how the mind is relating. It's the quality, the presence of wisdom or not in the mind. So wisdom in a Buddhist sense is the wisdom of not clinging. So knowing without clinging, awareness without clinging. And uh, that's really what we're, that's the direction of practice. And so we don't really need any experience to do that with, to, to realize that awareness without clinging, even the awareness of nothing in particular or the awareness of no object, as long as there's not clinging. But it's easy to cling like, oh, am I doing something wrong? Or what should I be doing? And then we can have awareness of that judgment or that fear or anxiety without clinging to that, just allowing the anxiety to be like this or the fear to be like this. And in a way, we're just allowing everything to move the mind, the personality, the attitude, the objects. We're just allowing everything to move. As much of a cliche as it is, going with the flow is really fine. Even when the flow leads us to a traffic jam in the mind, to just let that be and to let it find its own, let the mind find its own way out of that traffic jam. So in a way, we're always taking the stance with this awareness without clinging. Like that's our default strategy. And when that doesn't work, then we can take a more willful strategy like we willfully pick the mind up and we put it someplace. And I'll be talking that about that a little bit tonight in terms of effort. That can be useful. But that should be a secondary strategy. The first strategy should be to take the position of awareness without clinging. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> it's a long answer. Any other thoughts before we go back to effort or energy? Any questions about mindfulness instructions? Okay. Oh, you have to be loud so it bounces off this wall and goes to that room. Well, I think we'll be okay. You have a loud voice. Yes, I do. Um, if you've got your knee screaming or whatever part of your body is screaming, I always have great difficulty um, not moving. And then by that time, I feel like my focus has moved. So I'm usually quite blunt. I find it really difficult to be quiet once I start moving. Yeah, it's, it is, it's really challenging to work with strong physical pain, chronic pain. And <clears throat> part of what you might want to do is up front at the beginning of the sit, just remind yourself that, uh, just basically speak to your body, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. This isn't about me harming myself. That isn't what the practice is about. And, and just infusing the whole practice with compassion will make us less uh, a, a less of a rushed feeling in the movement. And you might be able to maintain the continuity even though you might have to move your body several times during the sit. That's really okay. It doesn't need to be a break. But if there's 
some sort of fear going on, like meditation practices about not moving, and then your body and its tendency to have strong pain is saying, this isn't going to work for me. And then already there's some anxiety. And so if we, we talk to ourselves about, well, it's really about the mind and the body working together. And like I was saying to Jan's comment and po- uh, question, you know, we're not uh, looking for a particular experience, like even the experience of physical stillness. It is helpful for concentration for the body not to move, but uh, it's also helpful for concentration not to be overwhelmed with pain. So, you know, you have to understand all the factors that support uh, concentration. And overwhelming pain does not support concentration. But moving more than you need to move doesn't support it either. So we might just, you know, bring some wisdom to what the knowing what the body can tolerate, choosing the best posture for the body and the best support for the body, understanding the appropriate length of time, and, and plan ahead of time that, okay, I want to sit for 40 minutes, but my body can handle about 10 minutes of stillness. So we plan the movements. Like, okay, at some point between 5 and 15 minutes, I'll probably have to move, but who knows? So you keep an open mind, maybe this time you won't, but who, but who knows? But when it does arise that I have to move, this is what I'll do. You know, I have this chair, I can just mindfully come, sit down on the chair, or from the chair to the standing position, from the standing position to the sitting position, or whatever works for us. Yeah, really be pragmatic about it. Unfortunately, one of the great tragedies is that there are a lot of people who are intuitively drawn to meditation practice but can't sit in a cross-leg position, so never decide to take up the practice. As if somehow sitting in a cross-leg position is synonymous with awareness without clinging. (laughs) The whole idea is to practice in all the postures. You know, the Buddha taught this. But the idea of the sitting posture, the reason it's gotten sort of uh, become a symbol of meditation practice, is for a person, a healthy person with some flexibility, it's often the easiest posture to learn meditation practice. But it's not true for everybody because every body is different. You know, our body histories are different, and each body requires special handling depending on what's been going on, how old we are, the injuries we've had, the genetics, you know, all those things matter. Anything else? Paul? Sometimes when I'm practicing at home, it's sufficient just to have sat there. Um, Even though you were to evaluate it, you may say, well, you could have done better in this way or that way, but I sat there. Sufficient. Yeah. And and it's very very helpful. Yeah, I totally believe it, and I I feel like I benefited a lot from just sitting there. <laughs> now it doesn't mean it's not. There's more going on, so I don't want to. Because if we just sat there and went unconscious or went into some trance state, it wouldn't help. But just sitting there means that there's an intention not to get involved in all of our inclinations. So we're, we're resisting them because we understand the limitations. Sure, we could get up and watch TV, but that doesn't lead anywhere. 
often doesn't lead anywhere. Or we could get up and do this, or we could get up and do that. So one of the things that we're doing is we're strengthening that wisdom or that understanding that understands the limitations of so much of what our habit energy would have us be doing otherwise. And just, even if we don't understand what the practice is about, just to remember there's a possibility of a different path is quite powerful and transforming. Mona. Um, on the note of moving and pain and sitting, um, I just want to just kind of bring up, because maybe other people have found this too, but um, as the years go on that I've meditated, I notice that the body kind of has some movement of its own cord. I mean, not like huge movements, but like it's a fluid. Mm-hmm. So I noticed that, you know, I may do different things with my posture, and my posture may shift, and that movement enough is just like, in a relaxed way, um, helps me let go of, I have to just sit here and I can't, you know, yeah. like, as the breath moves, the body moves, and, you know, there is a little bit of or sometimes a lot of that kind of organic movement that you're pointing to. That can be okay to right? Yeah. In fact, it could be unskillful to resist it. And sometimes it's not clear whether we're doing it intentionally or whether the body is just energetically, something's moving and we're just getting out of the way. And then we're just unclear at those times. So you can experiment sometimes with intentionally not moving and get a sense of whether that's skillful or not and sometimes intentionally not resisting movement and mm-hmm. seeing whether that's skillful or not. Like uh, an example of I, at one point I just looked up. I don't know if it was my neck that wanted to do it or what part wanted to do it, but I found myself just kind of looking up for a while. and. Mm-hmm. As, the, as the whole system quiets down, mm-hmm. There's sort of uh, uh, unfinished business, emotional, physical business, in a sense, trapped in the body. And uh, as the body settles down, as there's more calmness, that can release. And sometimes the movement's really just a subtle sort of turning or releasing. And sometimes it's a more dramatic movement. Yeah, and, and it's really appropriate just to trust that, how that unfolds. Anything else? Are, um, are itches almost always to be um, hopefully ignored because they're not pain? Except itches kind of... If you category, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I bet a number of people in this room have played with that, like of not scratching an itch. And it really feels like it's going to kill you. (laughs) It's amazing. And it's really a good lesson to see how something seemingly harmless, how, of course, the itch itself is harmless, but the mind's response or reaction to the itch is it gets as big as the universe. And it really teaches us about the difference between body and mind, how the habits of reaction can create 
huge, huge dramas that are very convincing. And sometimes, in terms of practically what to do, sometimes you just have a sense of the strength of your practice in, in that moment. And if it feels strong, then I would really stay with it, you know, and not move. But if you feel if it feels feeble, then you can you you might say, uh, this isn't the time for this challenge, you know. And then you just take care of it, reestablish pleasant enough sensation, and begin again. Because uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I, I, re- I remember when I was being trained to be a school teacher. This amazing statistic. I don't know. I can't remember exactly how the research worked, but somehow researchers determined that the optimal uh, process for learning is to have something like 90 to 97 percent success and 10 to 3 percent failure. So if you were giving a kid a worksheet, if you wanted the kid to master that skill, the best kind of worksheet would be one where he or she would get 95, let's say, percent of the answers correct and only make mistakes on five out of 100. And then that teacher would kind of give them some feedback on those and praise them for the ones that they were successful. And so this is a, a principle in learning. If we're sitting and the instructions we've been given from the teacher, like uh, I think Wynn did too, but I once got an instruction from a teacher to notice every blank throughout the day. <laughs> and not just to notice it, but to note it, and mentally note it. Oh, blinking, blinking. <laughs> and that wasn't all you were supposed to notice. That was that level of detail. That was an example of the level of detail. And, uh, you know, maybe for a master, that would be an appropriate instruction because he or she would be at the level that they were 95% successful at noticing everything and they needed to be challenged a little bit. And so noticing blinking was just the right medicine. But for other people... <laughs> <laughs> given, being given that instruction, like, luckily I, I have a lot of uh, uh, sort of, I'll, okay, I'll modify that instruction, thank you. <laughs> and I do that personally. I don't, you know, I didn't argue with the teacher. But, I mean, I understood the spirit of the instruction, so I, I felt confident to modify. Oh, moving in the direction of total continuity, you know, no breaks in the mindfulness. I got it, thanks. But if I had taken that as a real instruction before I was ready, not that I have been yet, <laughs> then it would have been just frustration. And pretty soon I would want to want to leave the retreat, you know, and say, yeah, it may make sense, but it's not for me. You know, I can't do this mindfulness. It's just too demanding. I can't sit still for an hour. I can't sit still for 15 minutes. So I guess, you know, maybe in a previous lifetime. I'll just tell another story because it, it's so indicative. I began my meditation practice in, in 1982 with a bang. I had a felt like a really powerful insight, and I was just really enthused. Uh, and I was sitting every day in a chair because I had run competitively all through high school and college across cross country and track, and, and I was really stiff. And no one taught us about stretching back then. Now, now I think they're more sophisticated. Um, but I was, you know, and I think just naturally a stiff person. And so I was really enthused. I quit my high-powered management consulting job in Washington, D.C. and decided I needed an easier job because I wanted to practice. And I 
decided to become a school teacher so I'd have my summers off. It actually turned out to be harder work, but I did have my summers off. And I decided I'd move to the Bay Area because one of the people I had heard of and book that had so impressed me was uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. I'm sure a lot of you have read it. It's one of the classic books in, in Western Buddhism as he came to the West in the early 60s and started the San Francisco Zen Center. They recorded some of his talks and some of his students turned it into a great little book. We have several copies in the library. It's still a great book. is isn't dated at all. Just about the essence of meditation practice or mindfulness practice. Zen mind, beginner's mind. And so I thought, okay, I'll go to get my teaching credential at UC Berkeley and I'll go practice at the San Francisco Zen Center. So I show up and, you know, it's beautiful but austere place. And there wasn't a chair anywhere that I could see. I've talked to people since, and they said, well, there, there are chairs. But I tell you, I did not see a chair there. <laughs> and, and here I've been practicing at that point for over a year, probably every day, almost every day, and uh, with real enthusiasm. But I couldn't sit on the floor, um, not then. And uh, I was so, it was like partly humiliated, but partly mistrustful of any organization. Of course, Suzuki Roshi had been dead for 10 years. Uh, not that that would have made a difference. I don't know. But uh, I just somehow didn't trust the organization if, if they didn't have chairs for ordinary people. Like, what kind of, like, that doesn't sound mindful to me. Not recognizing that people coming in to an intro session wouldn't need a chair. <laughs> that seems either arrogant or you don't care or something. It just felt off in some way. Um, so I never went back there. I mean, luckily, I, I stuck with my practice. But it, but it, it really set me back a little bit, like, uh, you know, what this was about. So I think uh, the point of all that is we have to really take ownership of creating the conditions that help us fulfill our aspiration. Like, to really get clear, our aspiration isn't to become a good meditator. Our aspiration is not to be so afflicted being a human being. Like, we have this mind and heart. Why is it such a burden so much of the time, having this life with a, you know, this mind and heart, this life? Why is, this that, why is that so difficult for us? And then to realize, well, we somehow have missed the lessons, you know, that some human beings have found. And we just need to learn those lessons. So what can we do to support this learning? And that's really where meditation practice comes in. What can we do to support this deepening wisdom about how the mind gets in afflicted states and how the mind can free itself from afflicted states? And this is really what, what this section of the factors of awakening is about. So I'll just make the transition to the talk tonight, and I'll continue it next Sunday. So um, last week I talked a little bit about right effort, and one of the main ways the Buddha talked about right effort or about the factor of awakening of energy is in terms of the four exertions. And it's just what to do with the mind. Like, we understand the possibility of living in a way where the mind isn't so afflictive or avoiding afflictive states. So what do we do as a formal training? And, of course, the Buddha, being so systematic, he laid it out in terms of four exertions, four ways to, to, to exert the mind. 
and it's so common sense, but it's, it's just a nice way to hold what we do all through our life, and then formal meditation practice is just where we're doing this formally. So we're exerting effort. In fact, I'll, I'll read the discourse, because it's... You have to remember, in India, especially at this time, they had this the caste system. They still have it today, of course. And the Buddha was born in the warrior caste. And not only was he born in that caste, uh, but he also was a prince. So his father was the king of a small little kingdom. And he was trained as a warrior, as a kind of learning all the martial arts of the day, learning how to manage probably groups of men and, uh, you know, get things done. And so a lot of the way he teaches comes with that energy. And again, just back to what I said a few moments ago, we have to do that translation. I mean, hopefully our teachers do some of that translation for us. But that energy doesn't always work for people, the martial warrior energy. So when you, when you read the direct teachings, the suttas or discourses, then you'll get some of that flavor. And for, if, you, if you have a personality where that's a turnoff, don't give it, up, give it up. Just do the translation. Understand it's coming from a particular culture, particular time and place, from a particular conditioned mind. The Buddha also had a conditioned mind, a personality, just like we do. He spoke from that personality, just like we speak from our personality. So this has a little of that warrior energy. There are these four right exertions. What for? There is the case where a practitioner generates desire, endeavors, arouses persistence, upholds and exerts his or her intent for the sake of the non-arising of unskillful qualities that have not yet arisen. So that's the first exertion. To put forward effort to prevent the arising of unskillful qualities that aren't currently in the mind. And I'll talk about this, but I want to just give us the lay of the land here. And then the second one, <clears throat> you, uh, the person would exert one's intent for the sake of the non-arising uh, for the sake of the abandoning of unskillful qualities that have already arisen. So this, you, the short way to remember the first is to prevent unskillful qualities that aren't there from arising. And the short way to remember the second is to abandon unskillful qualities that are present in the mind. Right? It's just common sense. You can probably guess the next two. Right? So if we've already abandoned what's unskillful and prevented unskillful from arising, what else would we want to do with our energy? Well, we'd want to exert our energy to develop the skillful qualities that aren't arisen, right? We'd want to develop them. And then the fourth is to maintain the skillful qualities that are present, right? So this is just a nice way, well, this is all we have to do, to become a fully enlightened, happy, wise, loving human being, we simply need to take our life energy, the, the capacity to make effort, and exert it in the direction of preventing the mind from going in directions that are unskillful, from abandoning unskillful qualities that are present in the mind, from developing skillful qualities, 
and maintaining skillful qualities that are present. And then the Buddha says, just as the river Ganges flows to the east, slopes to the east, inclines to the east, in the same way, when a practitioner develops and pursues the four right exertion, she flows to the unbinding, slopes to the unbinding, inclines to the unbinding. Unbinding is a word that this translator uses for the word nibbana or nirvana or enlightenment. The unbinding of the heart, so the heart that's all bound up with fear, with greed, with aversion, it gets unbounded if we make these four exertions. The important thing about these four exertions, it's always this uh, way in spiritual life that the means and the ends aren't different. They're really the same. The means and the ends are the same. So the way to exert the mind to prevent unskillful qualities from coming in, that exertion itself has to be skillful. We can't <clears throat> like base that exertion on fear or uh, anxiety or greed, like I'm going to be the guy who never has anger arise in the mind again. You know, and I'll show you guys what that's like. <laughs> Won't you be impressed? So the way to cultivate the four exertions is understanding well, what is the proper way to prevent unskillful qualities from coming in, to abandon unskillful qualities that are present. What are the skillful ways to develop the wholesome qualities and to maintain the wholesome qualities? And the short answer to that is wisdom. And one of the things that have been really useful for me to remember in terms of Buddhist wisdom, because it gets really subtle once you start thinking about what the Buddha means by wisdom in terms of the not-self characteristic or the how everything is just impermanent and conditional, that, that can be a little bit harder to directly understand. But the Buddha has a much more obvious and easy to understand definition of wisdom, which is there are causes and effects. Intentional thoughts or intentional actions as a cause have certain effects. And this relates to these four exertions. It's like the way to do this skillfully, to abandon, to prevent, to develop, and to maintain, the way to do this skillfully is with wisdom, the wisdom that understand the natural causes and conditions for the prevention of unwholesome uh, mind states from arising and the abandoning. And this is like just understanding nature. Like, <clears throat> you know, if we walked out to the river and saw one of those beautiful old oak trees that there are a few left there along the river here, and uh, or one of the big cottonwood trees, you know, and I said to you, or somebody said to you, okay, you have one week and you need to build one of these. You need to make one of these. You know, it would be really hard. I mean, anything, I mean, a car, a house, um, a body of knowledge. But actually, when you actually look at that cottonwood tree or that oak tree, 
the the creation of something really grand like that, it was really it was really natural. It was just a natural unfolding of causes and conditions. And this is true with everything in nature. This even includes things like the pyramids. I mean, we can look at the pyramids and think, oh my God, how much effort men and women exerted to make those pyramids. But, but actually, it's as much the force of nature as how uh, nature goes from winter and somehow is able to melt all that snow and thaw all of that frost you know, on the ground. Like, again, if, if we gave somebody the task, if we gave a group of people the task, okay, you know, take a look, there's two feet of snow, and then the ground is frozen to about eight inches, and your job, you know, is to soften all this up, to warm all this up, so that the seeds can grow, and, and you got to, you know, you have three months to do that. Well, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do that, probably. But yet, if we understood the natural causes of conditions, we can do these things and are patient, right? And it's the same thing. We may think, oh my God, I have so much fear. And this, for me, is a real common mind state for me. I, have, I just, in terms of how my mind has been conditioned, there's a lot of fear. And if I think, because I've been told, you know, that fear is an unwholesome state in the mind, it needs to be abandoned and I should prevent it from coming. So if I just understood that, then I could just use it to judge myself or to give up, be helpless. But if I understood that the presence of fear is just the result of causes and conditions, and the arising of non-fear, non-fear is just the result of causes and conditions, and with wisdom, by paying attention, and just understanding the causes and conditions that lead to the abandoning and preventing the fear from arising, and the cultivation and maintenance of non-fear, confidence, well, then it's just a matter of time. And this is so amazing. This is, I think, what people who do amazing things understand. Everything from Olympic athletes to, you know, just people who are successful in business or people who are somehow able to raise three or four kids or whatever. What they understand is the power <clears throat> and kind of breaking the thing down and just doing what comes next. <laughs> There's this great line. Some of you probably remember George Carlin, who, when I was a young man, he was like the hit uh, comedian back in, the, I guess, the early 70s and uh, mid-70s. And he had this line, uh, always do what comes next. You know, that was his great wisdom teaching. You know, always do what comes next. And that's just a great line. Because if we always do what comes next, if, if we kind of have the right aspiration, we set something really powerful in motion. So the key, the, the initial key with the four exertions is to be able to discern with wisdom what's skillful and unskillful. Because we just need to know what needs to pre- be prevented and abandoned and what needs to be cultivated and maintained. We have to at least see that. But that's wisdom. That's not really hard work. It's really much more about being interested, this quality of investigation, like just seeing how the mind works, how suffering comes to be, what states are related to suffering, what states are related to peacefulness and clarity and happiness. 
And then the more we start seeing that what's skillful and what's unskillful, then we start to see what is there that allows the unskillful state to get planted. So if I find myself thinking about, um, you know, what people might be thinking, well, then that may trigger fear. Or if I find myself thinking about who I think I should be, like the kind of person I want to be, then fear can arise because that doesn't match up with my life. And then I can be afraid that I've made some mistakes or that people will discover that I'm not who I'd like to be or who they might think I am. So uh, then I said, oh, so when the mind indulges in these thoughts, that supports the fear. If the mind doesn't indulge in these thoughts, fear doesn't get triggered. Oh, well, that's really interesting to know. When I reflect on, you know, how much people love and support me, that's the cause for gratitude to arise. So that's a really wholesome state. That's a state we'd like to develop and maintain, gratitude. And when we see, oh, it's just a matter of recognizing moments when people are doing beautiful things. And then gratitude's there. Well, I can do that. I can recognize when people are doing beautiful things. All you have to do is open your eyes sometimes in a sit and you see people doing their best just to stay with their mind and body experience. And that's a beautiful thing. And we can be really grateful to be in a room filled with people who are willing to sit with their body as it is, sit with their mind as it is. And that can make us feel really grateful to be in that in that space with those people. And then the key here that's a little different is that we're really noticing the nuts and bolts, like how that gratitude came, how patience arose in the mind. Because then we know how to maintain it and develop it, just like we learn how to prevent and abandon the unwholesome. I'll talk more about this next week. But we know enough now. We know the four exertions. So I think this is pretty easy to remember. And if you forget, just Google four exertions, Buddha, and you'll find many links to where you'll be reminded. And, but the basic way to remember is preventing unskillful, abandoning unskillful, developing skillful, maintaining skillful. And the key here isn't to judge yourself for all your failures, but to get interested and seeing how this happens naturally. This is all nature. And we just want to start participating with nature. In the end, it isn't Mark who abandons and prevents and Mark who develops and maintains. It's nature that does it. Our mind, even wisdom, is nature. Wisdom isn't something personal. This is the whole insight that the Buddha had that he's taught and that people have been developing for a long time now is that it's not personal. But right now we think it is personal. That's just how it is. But the wisdom that we're bringing to this, these four exertions is to understand the natural forces that lead to preventing, to abandoning, to developing, and to maintaining. The natural supporting causes and conditions and then once we start understanding that, the whole system that we call Mark or our, our life, it just starts making different choices. But we have to understand this before the changes begin. We have to understand what supports 
the preventing of unskillful states, etc. So there's not a lot of time, but there's about five minutes. If you if you have any examples from your own life of preventing, abandoning, developing, or maintaining unskillful and skillful states that you'd like to share with the group, it would be really nice to hear from people. Or if you have any questions about this topic that come to mind. Emil. I think we use that concept a lot in recovery because many of us in recovery are very fear-based. And uh, one of the jillions of aphorisms in recovery is that fear knocked at the door, uh, hope answered, and no one was there. And the story is that um, we can maintain gratitude in the present moment, then we're going to have hope that the next moment is also going to be worthwhile and it's impossible to have fear at the same time as you have hope and gratitude. Yeah, perfect. And that fits exactly in line with the uh, where the Buddha points to because one of the things that we discern about preventing is that when the mind is in this state, fear doesn't arise. And we just start getting it because it's part of the causes and conditions. Oh, fear can enter a mind that's grateful or that's content or that's you know, any number of wholesome states that's loving and kind. And then we see how protecting it is to have loving kindness in the mind or gratitude in the mind. And, I mean, normally when we're grateful, it's just it's a nice thing, but we don't think much about it. But if we really understood the power of gratitude when it, when it was there in the mind, we would be very interested in what we can do to maintain it. Because we see what a whole se- besides the fact that it's pleasant, it's so protecting. Same with loving kindness, same with so many of these wholesome states. But we just don't pay much attention. And so we don't learn the lessons that we can learn, like how maintaining can be so natural. And so then we're just left to the chance. Basically, our personality has certain strands that will naturally lead to moments of gratitude, but it's kind of random. It's just like when those personality strands get triggered and then we have a few moments of gratitude and then it's gone until we just sort of stumble upon those conditions that support a few more moments of gratitude. But because we're mostly living lives that are stimulating not so wholesome (laughs) mind states, we end up with a lot of things that are unwholesome. A lot of fear, a lot of neediness, other comments or questions? Cole? I can, it, it seems like that kind of uh, situation can go both ways where the, the gratitude can kind of you know, fill in and um, kind of cause wholesome mind states. But also, I found sometimes where I'll notice an unwholesome state and kind of seeing it fall away, whether it's, you know, maybe noticing I'm um, getting really greedy or really crafty about something, and it almost make me laugh, like, oh, I don't need that, and I'll actually kind of find some joy, and then it'll kind of, by letting that abandonment happen, it'll cause kind of the other to, yeah. to come in the opposite direction, to, to bring some wholesome mind states. Yeah, and so what you just described there, Cole, is a, a perfect example of wi- the wisdom of seeing cause and condition, causes and effect, because because there, I forget you said, did you say fear? There was fear in the mind. 
Oh, greed, that's right. You said greed. So there's greed in the mind. And then, then mindfulness arose. Then there was mindfulness in the mind. Mindfulness knowing greed. And that was the cause for joy. It wasn't the greed that was the cause for the joy. It was greed and, and probably the pain or suffering of the greediness was the cause for mindfulness. It sort of wakes us up. This is the one good thing about suffering. It tends to wake us up. Or it tends to lead us to distraction or reactivity. But sometimes it leads to waking up. Oh, greed. So that's mindfulness. That leads to the abandoning. That's an insight. It's like the mind can, can let go. And that leads to joy. And so now we're in a state that we'd like to maintain. So how do you maintain joy? Not attachment. Alexis? But next time it won't take as long. Huh? I bet next time it won't take as long. Because of the work you did. It's 8.30. So let's just take a few seconds. We'll let go of the words.